Welcome to Apply Filters, the podcast all about WordPress development. Now, here's your hosts, Pippin Williamson and Brad Tunar. Welcome to episode 70. This time, Pippin and I will be answering listener questions. But first... This episode is sponsored by SearchWP, a plugin for WordPress that dramatically improves search functionality within WordPress. It allows you to create custom search forms, uh, to search within files, such as PDF files or text documents. It allows you to create distinct search engines. So you could have, say, one search form that searches your products and then another search form that searches your blog posts or the other pages on your site. You can weight searches so that you can say that like taxonomy terms are more important than meta values or post content. Uh, it's a really powerful search plugin from Jonathan Christopher, and it is available at searchwp.com. If you haven't checked it out yet, definitely go take a look. Awesome. So let's get right into it. I'll read the first question here. Uh, how do you deal with plugin pirating? Any thoughts to share? Well, oh boy. Um, I mean, I think uh, anybody who has built a commercial plugin that has received any more than maybe five customers has probably dealt or seen pirating to some degree. And now we should probably be careful on how on using the word pirating because technically sharing GPL code is not really pirating. But overall, the, the general idea is you have a commercial plugin that you sell, whether it's through your own site or Code Canyon or any other website, and somebody either buys it or gets, obtains a copy somehow and then resells it or redistributes it through another source um, without giving you compensation for it is what I think people are typically referring to when they say plugin pirating. What's your experience been? So we've only had one that I'm aware of, one instance of this. And what the person did is they took WP Migrate DB Pro. Do you, hold on. Do you mean only one instance that you know of your, your plugins were ever uh, redistributed or only one that was problematic? Yeah, that's, I, I don't know of anyone else like sharing our plugin. I'm sure it's happening. <laughs> I just, I don't, I just don't think it's gotten enough attention that I be, I've become aware of it because I, I, I don't know. I don't go out there hunting for these for these folks, right? I don't make it kind of my philosophy is just to just kind of accept that a little bit of it's good of that is going to happen, right? It's always happened with software, right? Any any anything digital is going to get passed around. So okay, fine. When it becomes a problem for us is when someone would take it and then they pass it off as their own work and and don't change our name, don't t- change the name of the product. And so they're essentially um, infringing on our trademark. And so that's that's where I that's where it's a, kind of a, a legal problem, really. Um, but it's still really hard to enforce, I, I've found. And I don't want to even say the name of this person that's doing it uh, or even say the name of the, pro- the project that they've renamed it to. And the reason I don't want to do that is because what I've found is that it makes it worse. It makes it worse when you bring more attention to this person because most of the time, these people, that's what they're looking for, right? They're looking for attention. What I've learned is that every time that I try to fight it, it gets worse <laughs> instead of better. <laughs> so I just, I try to leave it alone and, and just hope that it kind of just dies out. Because the other thing is, so this person is distributing our paid product for free, 
so they're not they're not getting anything from it. So they they have very little incentive to keep doing it. And it seems like the only incentive they have is to be anarchistic or contrarian, right? That's their motivation for doing it. Because we're offering it as a paid subscription, they see that as wrong and and so they're doing it kind of to fly in our face, I guess. By giving them more attention, that's exactly what they want, right? So it's you're playing into their hands. So I've tried to just ignore it. <laughs> that's been been my kind of strategy lately. I think that's my strategy as well. I've not I'm not convinced that actively trying to fight it, trying to get people's hosting accounts discontinued or trying to get them to take plugins down or however they're doing it, I'm not convinced that it's worth it in any way. I, I think we have to realize that piracy or, I mean, in this case, like we said earlier, it's not exactly piracy, but we'll use that term for now. It happens in every industry and it has, a, it has an impact on business owners, but I think that impact is largely proportional to how you choose to fight it. So if you decide that you're going to actively fight piracy and you're going to try to take down every offender and you're going to try to strictly protect all of your code to make sure that nobody can, can do it, I think you're just wasting time. Um, I think it is a, in, in my opinion, it's kind of a, a disservice to the people that are actually paying for your, paying for your products because you're putting time and effort into the wrong place. So personally, my answer is I do nothing with a few, with a couple of exceptions. Every now and then, if we see somebody uh, redistributing one of our one of our plugins while also trying to do it underneath our brand or like using using our brand or our trademarks, then we will go after them for that. But that is only in um, protection of our branding, uh, not for the actual code itself. We don't care about the code. We care about the branding and the reputation that goes with it. Right. It might be interesting for people to hear like what what we have actually tried in the past. I'm willing to share that. So I'm willing yeah. to share. So I I've contacted GitHub in the past, and um, this is before I actually had tr any trademarks, any registered trademarks. So technically, if you're if you're selling something with a name, technically you already have a trademark. It's just not registered yet. You have to like register it with the USPTO to to make it more official, and uh, I guess it's it's easier to like um, start a legal action if you actually have a registered trademark. Um, so it's, we have those now, but at the time I didn't have anything. Uh, but but the person who was copying our software and they were also copying all of our marketing materials off our website, and that's copyright infringement. So I submitted a copyright infringement claim to GitHub, and they took the uh, his the repository down for a short time, and then they let let the guy put the stuff back up with tweaks to the the marketing copy. I I still I find like that's a little soft of GitHub to 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 just give them a slap on the wrist for copyright infringement. It seems like it should be a bit more severe of a punishment than that. When the repo came back online, all of the traffic to that repo was still flowing, right? So they didn't have to, they didn't have to start over, right? So I feel like they they could have been more uh, harsh uh, th than they were. And then I realized that the uh, owner of this repo was also 
pushing people to a copy of our software that had our trademark in it. And so he was still using, technically distributing our software with our trademark name in it. I, I submitted that to GitHub, but they, they passed it through the legal department and they didn't see it as a trademark uh, violation, uh, which... Interesting. Yeah, I don't agree, obviously. <laughs> but... Um, yeah, it is what it is, and and uh, so that's that's been my experience with with yeah. this. And we've done a um, kind of in the same way you submitted to GitHub. We've submitted hosting accounts, hosting companies before. So if we find a a website that has taken our branding, um, and again, we don't care about the plugins themselves. We just care about the branding and in any trademarks. Then we can we've we've gone to the hosting companies before and said, hey, this account, this URL that's hosted on your systems are violating our trademarks and our copyrights please take them down. We have, we have had some success with getting those discontinued sometimes. Um, the, the bigger one where we get really admin about it though, is if we discover that you, somebody is doing that and they're also committing fraud at the same time. So like we have found, we've had customers that have come to our, our sites, bought all of our plugins using a stolen credit card and then redistributed through their own site. Obviously we block that customer but then you can report those to the hosting account. And if you have proof that it's fraud, then that's a lot easier to, to take down uh, because it's not just somebody trying to, to fork. It's legitimate theft at that point. And that we will act very harshly against. So we're pr pretty quick to block those. But beyond that, I'm not, I'm not much very interested in spending time fighting plug-in redistribution. Yeah, we've got other things. I, I, I feel like yeah. the energy you put into that kind of stuff is much better spent if you spent the same amount of energy like moving your products and your company forward it, absolutely it, yeah. i would much rather spend one hour and earn two new customers than or than spend one hour and maybe take down a bad a bad apple yeah exactly so all right we've probably better move on before we go on too much of a tangent <laughs> yeah use over a whole episode uh, okay, our next question is, uh, I'd love to hear you guys talk about marketing and sales flows. How do you promote your plugins? Where do you advertise if you do? And what tools do you use to manage your marketing and sales funnels? I think we've talked, uh, we answered this question in some form or other on some previous episodes. So maybe we'll keep it a little bit brief, but uh, what do you do for your, um, Brad, do you have any any advertising tools that you use or specific marketing flows that you use? Yeah, we pr primarily do what you would call content marketing. Uh, so we post on our blog every week and, and we try to do really high quality content for our blog. So not just fluff, fluffy articles that have very little substance, uh, which I, f I find, I feel like there's a lot of that out there, uh, these days. So that's, that's how we the, try to do 10 best plugins to run your business. <laughs> yeah, that's the, that's the one, <laughs> uh, we try to differentiate from that by by doing like in-depth tutorials and like really well really substantive um, uh, articles and uh, I think that's that's easily the the best return we've ever found on any advertising air quotes investment right and then of course we we also publish this on Facebook and Twitter uh, and Google Plus just because I don't know what Google Plus does. But it's Google, so you gotta play play their game, man. <laughs> they want you to use Google Plus, then we're gonna use Google Plus. <laughs> then we also boost the Facebook article 
uh, using Facebook's ad platform, and we spend thirty-five dollars uh, for to run it for a week, and that's just to get like new new eyeballs on our on our site and stuff. And then we do re- we also have remarketing running. So if you come to our site, and then you end up anywhere else on the web, you're going to see our banner. Every, every now and then I see your ad pop up and I'm always like, dang it, he's following me. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it's kind of annoying, kind of creepy uh, remarketing, but it works pretty well. So I believe it. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, okay. This is, this one's for you, Brad. Uh, hi, I was, I was thinking if you guys can talk about what Redis cache is how to use it for WordPress and what kind of performance improvement we can get out of it. Oh, I don't know about performance. I think you're, you're a little bit more familiar with this than I am. Um, so what can you tell us? Uh, well, yeah, I wouldn't say I know Redis very well because I don't. I, I, know, I know of object caching, which is what we use Redis for in WordPress. Um, so, I mean, maybe you want to explain what's, what object, you know what object caching is, right? And... I do. I will. I will say that anytime I get into a, a caching discussion, is that I typically put my foot in my mouth because I get something wrong. <laughs> That's okay. We're winging it here. So. <laughs> um, but so so yeah. So object caching is essentially. Let's say um, you're querying. You load a page and it's querying for a post in the database. Well, uh, with object caching. Uh, a persistent object cache, the next time an, a visitor comes to that same page and instead of querying the database, it's going to pull that, that data right out of memory, which is where Redis keeps it. That was kind of a weird uh, explanation, but hopefully that made sense. And then Redis, Redis is just, uh, just a uh, key value store essentially. And it runs on the server and uh, WordPress essentially connects to the Redis server and it can pull stuff out of it. Uh, Prior to using Redis, I think we used something called APC, which was an extension for PHP. So you would build PHP 5.6, let's say, with APC, uh, and then you would use that system to manage your object cache, your persistent object cache. But with PHP 5.7, it got rid of, uh, or did I say 5.7? I meant PHP 7. <laughs> it got rid of APC, and so we didn't have an object cache anymore. So now we use Redis to, to do our object caching. So that's why you've heard of Redis more recently. I think people were experimenting with Redis like prior to PHP 7 being released, but I think PHP 7s would really pushed Redis uh, as as the persistent object cache for WordPress kind of forward. Um, does that does any of that make sense, Pebin? Yeah, I think that was nice and clear. Okay. Do you have any questions about it or, or is it good enough? Um, I'd be curious to know what your own uh, performance improvement measurement was if you were able to do it like with it on versus off. Because I, th- I think it's important to note that uh, anytime you're talking about caching of any kind or any kind of system that is designed to improve performance is that it can vary dramatically from system to system, from, from hosting account to hosting account, from site to site, 
based on what else is running on the site, how you're con- how you're configured, the hardware that you're running on, the software that you're running on, the versions you're running on. So just because one person sees great results does not mean that you will as well. It's something you have to take with a grain of salt. Um, it's just like why some of the caching plugins, uh, W3 Total Cache, W3 Super Cache, et cetera, uh, Rocket Cache, some of those, or WP Rocket, uh, why some of those will give people awesome results and sometimes they're horrible. Sometimes they can actually dramatic, uh, cause significant problems. And it's, so it's, uh, just because if, if Brad has great results does not mean that you will, yeah. uh, is I think important to realize. Oh, so, so I will say like, you should definitely have an object cache if you're at all concerned about performance with WordPress. Okay. Because WordPress does uh, do a lot of querying the database and those are slow operations no matter what your setup is right so having having an object cache sitting kind of in front of that uh, will will give you a better uh, performance that's it period <laughs> right there's there is no there is no maybe uh, with with object cache versus no object cache if you're talking about cache there's also page cache, right? Which is kind of like the next level uh, where where you cache the entire page request. So that may or may not, depending on your application, help, right? Because let's say you're running something like BuddyPress. Well, BuddyPress is very dynamic um, system, right? Like most of the pages, you want like the latest data to show up, like the news feed or, or whatever, Right, you don't want to cache the whole page where the newsfeed is because you won't get the latest stuff that shows up in the newsfeed. So, so for that, like a page cache is probably not going to help you that much, but an object cache will help you a ton in, in that situation. Um, there's also e-commerce is another great example where yeah. page caching can be problematic. Oh yeah, yeah. So on our site for e-commerce, we don't have like a shopping cart icon or anything in the top part because we page cache everything. <laughs> right. But but we, we, we could get around that by doing Ajax, right? By doing an Ajax call to show like the, the cart count. Um, but we just haven't bothered because we have one. We have two products. So how big is your cart? Right. Be? You don't really need a shopping cart. <laughs> yeah. You need a checkout page that happens to allow people to complete the payment. But you're not adding and removing items from your shopping cart. Exactly. I will refer our listeners to an article on our blog that will give them a really good overview of where where you're gonna where you're gonna be able to get lots of performance. Um, so Ashley uh, wrote a great article titled "A CDN Isn't a Silver Bullet for Performance" because we get a lot of people coming to us to buy WP Offload S3, thinking that it's gonna just it like magically makes their site faster. But if you're on like, you know, cheap web hosting and uh, that's shared with way too many people, you, you know, if your server is slow, that's not, you know, that's where you need to focus your energy on first, right? Before you start looking at, you know, a CDN, right? So, so anyway, Ashley really lays out where, where you should start before you get to, to a CDN for your optimization. And so he goes through all the different levels, levels of caching and, and all that stuff. So we'll link that up. We'll get that show. linked up in the show notes. Yeah, for sure. All right. What's next, Brad? Ah, uh, yes. What do we have here? Uh, what would be the recommended roadmap 
for a PHP developer to become a WordPress plugin developer? What are the steps? Oh, this is a good one. This is a, actually, I think, a fantastic question. And I don't know if I'm going to have a decent answer for it. Um, for one, because my experience is going to vary wildly from the person asking this question. And that's because I learned PHP through WordPress, which means that I <gasps> knew WordPress before I learned PHP. Um, for better or for worse. <laughs> there's there's going to be a, a lot of people that will... Uh, well, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll leave that for another discussion. Uh, I think there's a couple of things that you do need to look at first. Um, I mean, the very first step is you need to look at the plugin API. The plugin API being the action and filter hook system that WordPress has, because that's how everything's going to run, how every plugin is going, every plugin is going to use that plugin's API to function. There's, there are some things you can do without using the plugin's API, but it's almost zero. Um, so that's the first thing. If you just if if you're listening and and this is for you, Google search WordPress plugins API and that'll get you started. Um, you have to know how to hook in. You need to know how to add in filters and you need to know how to add in actions during the WordPress load process. And I think the step that comes second is to learn the load process, to learn when certain actions happen, where certain filters fire, et cetera, so that you can tie in at the proper place. How would you, how would you uh, suggest people do that exactly? To learn the load process? Yeah. Uh, there is a wonderful diagram. Uh, I, I want to say that um, Rarst put it together. Um, it goes by Rarst Online. It's, a, it's basically a tree diagram or a flow diagram that shows here's where it starts and then here's each of the actions that happen. Here's the file it comes from. Here's the, basically the step um, and lets you get a pretty good view of when things happen. It also has notes in there of like, okay, this at this point is when it's safe to run plugins. At this point is when the theme is loaded. Here's where you can interact with the, the server, the request from the browser. Here's where you can do this and do that, et cetera. I'll, I'll try and link it up in the show notes. I'll, I'll find a link to it after this and put it in there. Cool. But it's very valuable. Yeah. I don't think I've seen that. Um, I don't think I've seen that. But um, Oh, it's excellent. I think... I, th I, still, I still reference it pretty frequently. Nice. I, I think what I would do, if I... I think what I have done <laughs> is I've gone... I started at index.php and then I go from there. Like, I just follow the code until, you know, until I'm satisfied, <laughs> I guess. To see where I am. Yeah, I, I think that's a great way to do it. Um, I remember, so I wrote a tutorial series uh, for Plugin Development 101. And I think one of the ones, one of the parts to that series was about looking into the code of core. Um, there is a lot of code in core. There's a lot of different files. There's a lot of different logic that happens. And it's, I don't know, 10, it's now what, 12, 14 years old, something like that. You can see every quality of code there. There's bad code, there's good code, there's spaghetti code, there's pretty code, there's a mix of everything. Um, but by digging into it and, and reading through it, like you said, starting index.php, you can get a better understanding of what's happening, when things are happening, uh, and, and that should give you a, a good start. Right. And on that note about the quote, like the differing code quality, one thing that I found... Uh, helpful when I when I'm going through the code is, is if you look at the uh, like the headers uh, the header comments of, of certain methods and functions 
there'll be there'll be an at since version number, which means I believe that means when that function or method was added to core. Uh, so that gives you kind of a better idea of like what are the mo- what what does modern code look like versus like something that's that's more kind of older. Yeah, <laughs> and, and core has also been getting really good about putting in. Um, inline documentation to say when something changed as well. Mm. So there might be a since tag in there to say like, since 3.1, this now behaves this way. Oh, okay. Um, so, so does does since, another, does since always mean like when it was first introduced or is, is it? I, I, d- I always thought it did, but it turns out it doesn't. Um, <laughs> in terms of the, I don't know what you call it, like the the, the PHP documentation syntax, you can use multiple sense tags. So you can you can do you can have your sense and say this was introduced in version 1.0 and then since 3.0 this now behaves this way. Um, there's you can have as many as you want and you can also use them in line. Say it doesn't have to just be in a function definition. You can use them inside of functions as well, and it's still considered proper syntax. Ah, interesting. Yeah, I did not know that until like I think I don't know two weeks ago when I asked Drew James about it. <laughs> And he's he's the, the Oracle. code documentation guru. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Isn't is he the one that added all the one all the doc blocks for the filters? Was that him? He, uh, he's done a huge number of them. It wasn't just him. It was a coordinated effort with a with a team. But I believe he led that project. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I remember that he was just killing it for that yeah. project. Our inline code documentation and affiliate WP has quadrupled since he started working on it i bet nice great cool all right anything else before we move on no let's go okay um next one uh well actually brad why don't you read this sure this is about edd oh okay yeah you this will you're you're gonna take this one okay i use okay this is quote i use edd and the software licensing extension to sell wordpress plugins plugins hosted on the wordpress.org Plugins directory are recognized by their slug. If a premium plugin I am selling using EDD has the same slug as a plugin on the WordPress.org plugins directory, and an update is available for my version of the plugin, will be overwritten by one of by one on WordPress.org. This is kind of written crazily, but. <laughs> Is it possible to, let's say, hijack the plugin update process so that my version is the one that is updated? Okay, so basically this is a a known problem with uh, plugin updaters for like updating from a a source outside of WordPress.org. The the plugin update API in WordPress core is designed to interact with WordPress.org period, and is not designed to interact with any other remote location. So that means that every single plugin installed on your website is going to have, it's going, WordPress is going to look to wordpress.org and say, does this plugin have an update on wordpress.org? So let's let's use your plugin as an example. So let's say WP Migrate DB Pro. If someone was to fork your plugin and put it on .org and was able to get the slug of WP Migrate DB Pro on WordPress.org. Anytime they push an update, and if their version number is higher than the one from your website, WordPress will show the .org version instead of your version. 
because .org takes precedence, basically. Typically, that's how it typically works. Um, so to answer the question directly related to EDD software licensing, uh, we did actually add a parameter to our updater class that allows you to overwrite or ignore .org. Uh, and we, we wrote a blog post on our development website about how to use this, and I will link it up into the show notes. So the short answer is yes, you can get rid of this problem and you can fix it. Um, so your, your plugin, or so EDD will essentially just override whatever is on .org. Like it won't, it'll just right. ignore it. Yep. So if your plugin uh, on your website is version two, but on WordPress.org, there's a matching plugin found that is version three, it will just ignore the version three and will show the version from your website. Right. So this, this, is, this is the code that a developer would include in their plugin, right? This is part of yes, that Yes, it code. is. Yeah. Yep. All right. Cool. A little fun question for you from a listener. Does Pippin ever take off his hat? And no. I, th- I think, yeah, he sleep, sleeps with it, shower, shower, <laughs> showers with it. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. No, I have a, I have a very close personal relationship with my hat. I like it a <laughs> yeah. lot. Cool. All right. Next is, uh, and this is our last question for the day. Uh, what does your project management look like? Such as what tools do you use? What, uh, do you validate features with users? How do you decide on features, etc.? What do you do, Brad? Wow. Okay. So we use Trello for kind of the high level bird's eye view of, of, of what people are working on. As an example, uh, like one of the cards would be WP Migrate DB Pro 1.7. So that release, and then like whoever's the members of the team that are working on that are assigned to that card. So it gives a nice view of like what everybody's working on in the company at any at any given time. Uh, and then to get like more granular, you would go to GitHub to the issues for WP Migrate DB Pro and uh, take a look at what the, the issues are for the milestone 1.7. So we keep most of the, our project management stuff in GitHub, kind of the details. And and then we use Slack for like the rest of the communication. Um, we use a little bit of Google Docs for like meeting notes that kind of stuff and that's about it i can't really think of any other tools that we use for project management uh, what about you uh we pretty much share the same suite of tools we have uh numerous trello boards that we use for kind of our internal discussions planning project management etc like for example we have one for edd we have one for affiliate p we have one for rcp we have one that is kind of company-wide. We have a marketing board that is company-wide. We have a um, we have an extensions board for managing all of our plugins for easy digital downloads. Uh, we use a Trello board for apply filters. Um, we have we have a bunch of different Trello boards that we use kind of for that internal communication that needs to be persistent. So, like for example, stuff that should not be in a chat conversation that will be quickly lost goes into Trello. So if we have an ongoing project that might take us a week, a month, a year to complete, we're going to put it in Trello and and slowly work on it. Um, Then we use GitHub for all of our development tracking, um, bugs, features, enhancements, et cetera. Um, Slack is our team communication tool, and we use it every single day. We we break our Slack um, channel 
or we break it up into multiple channels. So for example, we have a support channel for each product. We have an EDD support, RCP support, AFWP support. We have a docs channel for each one. We have a general channel for each one um, so that we can break each one of those general subject areas into its own channel so that we can have multiple concurrent conversations. And then we also have a general, which is kind of like a, just like a water cooler. Uh, we have other ones for things like health and wellness for, uh, we have one that we call each one teach one. So if you want to ask somebody, Hey, could you teach me this kind of thing? Whether it's a, a PHP question, a Git question, a personal life question, anything. Uh, we also maintain a couple other things. Like we have a security channel, for example, that if we need to discuss a security problem, we have those. Uh, and those are really our three big ones. Uh, oh, I guess uh, Help Scout for support. But I guess the question was really about project management. So um, it's it's really it's GitHub, Slack, and, and Trello are the are the three. And then every now and then we'll also use uh, Google Docs for um, if we need to write things up or if we want to keep get some spreadsheets together of various things. Yeah. Have you guys tried uh, the GitHub, the new GitHub features um, that are similar to Trello? We played with them a little bit and I'm not in love with them yet. I think they're really cool. Right now they don't provide enough of what we would need to replace Trello and it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to use both. Yep. It's exactly what, what we determined as well in our assessment. I, I think they would I think it would work really great if you have, say, an open source plugin that has outside contributors. Uh, or any open source project that has outside contributors and you don't want to set up like a dedicated project management for all the contributors. So you don't want to set up a Trello board or a Slack channel or anything like that. You could use the new projects features in GitHub to help manage that. Uh, that would definitely be a, a worthwhile tool. And the other one that I forgot to mention is Zapier. We use Zapier a lot. Oh yeah? What for? Uh, uh, we do a few things. Uh, number one, we have a kind of a pick me up thing that runs anytime we get a large sale. So like anything over um, $400, it sends a ping to our Slack room as a hooray <laughs> kind of uh, thing. Nice. Uh, it's just, you know, it's just a little fun pick me up. Uh, Check we that have... it's fraud if it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> oh, sad day. Uh, we also have a one that, this is a, a specific use case that we have not taken full advantage of yet. But something that we were starting to look into was doing better with uh, sending out swag to like high value customers. So we set up a workflow in Zapier that if a customer ever crosses a threshold, add them to a Trello list uh, with their value and their email address, their name, et cetera, as a, hey, we should send this person a thank you uh, was something that we connected with Zapier. So it come it basically reads data from EDD anytime a customer is updated. And then if it if it passes a set of conditions, basically a lifetime value, it then sends a card to Trello and then automatically assigns it to a team member. Um, it's something we haven't finished doing it yet, but it's in progress. And we also use it for automatically subscribing or unsubscribing customers to a specific list in MailChimp based on their license key. So if a license key expires, they get added to a dedicated list that says, hey, this is an expired customer so that we can then set them into workflows of follow up in a month or so to offer them a discount if they want to come back and renew or send them a, a question of, hey, is, is there a reason you didn't renew or what can you can you can you provide any feedback to help us improve it? Things like that. 
Um, and then we use a, a similar workflow with, with Zapier that anytime a license key is renewed or reactivated, go and look and see if that customer was on that list and remove them to make sure that they don't get an improper email. We do quite a bit of that. Zapier automation is awesome. Yeah. So there's another part to the question I don't think we answered. Uh, do, you, do you validate features with users? How do you decide on features? So... Um, you want to answer that first? No, you go ahead. Okay. Um, I've toyed around with various ways to do this a lot. There, I think there's a lot of common ways to do it. One is to do it purely based on customer feedback. So if a customer, like in a support ticket... Uh, or in a pre-sale or in a feature request ticket or something like that says, hey, I would love to have this or I think it should behave this way, make a note of that. Um, whether that you note it down in GitHub or your own internal board on Trello or a Google Doc or however you choose to do it, take a note of it. Um, another way you can do it is you could say, here's a public roadmap that anybody can vote on. Here's all of the features that we have listed as possible candidates uh, and allow people to add their own features as well. That I've seen that work well. And maybe then somewhere a mix of the two. We do some of both of those. Um, we don't have anywhere for people to vote on features. Um, there's a there's a few reasons behind it, but we we decided not to. We do we do have all almost all of our GitHub repos are public, and we have most of our planned features logged there, and we have quite a few feature requests logged there as well. So anybody who wanted to could come in and and leave their comment or their their feedback on it. The, the main thing that we do, though, is in customer support, if we get a request for something, we log it. And then when we get another request for that, we log that back on the where we logged it originally to say, hey, here's another request for it. Here's another request for it. Here's another request for it. And we try and keep a connection between the customers that requested a feature and the development of that feature so that when it's done, we can go back and follow up with them all. How do you manage all that? Is there a system that you use for that? Like some kind of software? Um, for that, it's mostly in GitHub. It's mostly in GitHub. So you're so, just adding comments to an issue every time? Yeah. So like if the, the first time we get a feature request, we'll log it as a add support for this or add this feature or, or however you want to describe it. And then we'll, we might say originally we requested here. And then the next time it comes in, we just drop a note and it says, here's another customer that requested it. With, here's another with a one. link to the Help Scout. Yeah. Yeah. It's exactly yeah. what we do. But... We've, we found that that kind of sucked because you couldn't, like, at any given time, you couldn't say, okay, what's the top five, you know, issues? Yeah, that you can't sort it by votes. Exactly. And, and so it was, it was good for a while to do it that way when we were smaller and you could kind of just, you kind of just had a sense for like what the things that kept coming in were and like right right if you see the same request over and over again you just remember yeah it. but now we've got eight people doing support right so not any one person doesn't have us that sense anymore so we've got a freaking log and count count things so we set up a spreadsheet um with with things with with the issues on you know each row is is an issue or a feature request or whatever that comes in to support and then the then the first column is votes and that determines how it's sorted so the whole spreadsheet is sorted by the, the vote count and it's and we have it somehow we found a found a little macro that like sorts the whole spreadsheet as you update the votes so you don't ever log a request on your github we do we do both until you decide to actually do it 
No, we do both. We we log it on GitHub okay. so that we have a record of who's requesting these things, right? So we still still need to know like what are the help scout issues <laughs> for for those um, for that this feature. Who who is actually requesting these things? Um, so we log it in GitHub and we we put a we add a count to the spreadsheet. So it's not a very it's kind of a nuisance of a system, but we couldn't. Like I went out looking for software that could manage this, and I couldn't find anything. And yeah, I've never really found a good one um, that isn't like a public roadmap. Exactly. I think public roadmaps are really easy to do exactly. because, for example, you could do a public Trello board that has the vote feature. Yeah. What I what I would really like is a a roadmap tool that has a vote feature. I would love this to be in GitHub. I want GitHub to add a like a vote feature. Yeah. Would be, so make me so happy in GitHub um, or in but, Help Scout. Help Scout would be a good place yes. for it too. But the other thing that I want is I don't want just a unique vote system. I want a count system where a, an admin can up can set a count any number of times they want. So every time that we get it requested, I can up the count, up the count, up the count. Because most voting systems are based on uniques, so it's unique votes. But if you are, let's say, if you're doing it as a private system. You're not having 100 people come in and, and vote. You as an admin are coming and say, we've had 100 people ask for this. So you are logging that count. If anybody has a great tool recommendation, please share. Because I think, yeah, Brad, you and I have definitely both um, run across this and not found a great tool for it. One of my team, I think it was Gilbert, pointed me to this bare metrics feature system that I really like it. I really like it. It's so... It's a scoring system. So there's demand. So you can rate, rate the demand high, medium, low. You could rate the impact that, that this feature will have as high, medium, low. The effort required to, to build it as, you know, high, low, really, you know, like how much effort is it going to take to build this? If it's like really low, then the score would be higher. Right. Because because it, it's it's easier to knock it off. Right. Like you can you can do it really quickly. Then why not do it? Right. If it's if it's got high if it's got low effort, high impact and high demand, like that's a winner. Like. Right. So that would have a high. Oh, yeah, this is cool. A high score. Right. So this scoring system, I think, is genius. And uh, I think we're going to integrate it uh, and maybe alter it slightly because I would really like to include our vote count as one of the metrics because that's that's missing here. The, the demand is is one of the metrics that Bear Metrics is using, but it's uh, it's subjective, right? Like I choose high demand or medium demand or low demand. So if we could use the the actual vote count that we have already in our spreadsheet as the demand, I think this this would be this would be awesome for us. So that's on my to do list is to integrate. We'll put a link idea. to that. Um, it was a it was a blog post on Bear Metrics that showed this. I'll put it in the show notes. Looks like a pretty sweet system. Yeah, yeah. So it's all it is is a, it's a Google spreadsheet uh, that you can uh, that they're just offering up. You just make a copy of it and uh, and use use it. So very nice. Yeah. I think uh, it, it's it's addressing that question that I think every developer and every team faces of what to build next. What to build so. next? It's so easy when you're first starting out because like, <laughs> I know right. It's, but then as you get as the project gets more mature and and the team gets bigger, it just gets it does get much more difficult to 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 tell what should you build next. You know. 
Yeah. Figuring out like what has priority versus what doesn't. I mean, you could have a thousand requests for something, but that doesn't mean it has priority. Yeah, exactly. I think I think the advice that I heard early on from from people was was just don't worry about it uh, early on because you'll you'll have that sense for what's important. So so this scoring this scoring system, if you're just starting out and you have a product that's really you know really new. Don't worry, don't do this scoring system. That I think that's probably premature. Um, I mean, you can if you want, obviously, but I, I think it's probably not worth it in the beginning. Just go with go with uh, go with your kind of your gut and w- what what people are telling you. So I would agree with that, one hundred and ten percent. Yeah. Well, shall we wrap up here? Yes, let's do it. All right. Thanks for chiming in. Again, everybody, and once again, this episode was sponsored by SearchWP. You can find them at searchwp.com. Jonathan is nice and easy to reach out to if you have any questions, uh, he's, and he's very friendly, so don't be afraid to. All right. Talk to you next time. Cheers.